invite you to take God's Word and turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Uh, Luke chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses uh, 57 through 80. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. That we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers. And to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. To grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness And in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Well, after having spent some time examining Mary's angelic experience, watching her interaction with her cousin Elizabeth, And listening to her song of praise, uh, Luke now returns to an individual that arrested our attention at the beginning of the chapter, Zechariah. Zechariah was Elizabeth's husband, and it was he who experienced the first angelic appearance when Gabriel came to him and said that his wife, although childless and of old age, would miraculously conceive and bear a son. But not just any son, a son with a unique purpose, a son who would make ready for the arrival of the Messiah. 
But as we know, even with that angelic appearance, Zechariah did not believe the message. He doubted everything that was said to him. In fact, he stated to Gabriel that due to his circumstances, what he was saying was going to happen could never happen. And as a result of his unbelief, God disciplined Zechariah. His voice was completely taken away. Not one word could he speak. It's important that we be reminded of that, that this was an act of the Lord's discipline. But the Lord's discipline in our lives is, is for a purpose. I remind you this evening that the Lord's discipline is not to punish us. The Lord's discipline is to humble us. It's there to restore us. And he does this because he loves us. He uses it to prove himself in our doubts. He uses it to assure us that we are his child. And he uses it to make us more like him. In fact, everything that God does in our life, including his discipline and his correction, is to make us more like Christ. I remind you of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5 where the writer says, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves. Do you hear the word of the Lord tonight? He disciplines the one He loves. He chastises every son whom he has received. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and are not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, that is our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, God, our heavenly Father, disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. He disciplines us that we may share His holiness. Holiness. For the moment, all discipline is painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It fulfills its purpose in those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. What is the purpose of the Lord's discipline? To show us that He loves us. To assure us that we are His children. To help us become more like Him. To share in His holiness. He disciplines us to restore us. 
to heal us. And that's what he's saying here in Hebrews 12, that when we learn from the Lord's discipline and love and grace, he restores us to his service. Now, all of that fits within what is happening here with Zechariah. And this is where we are tonight as we return to Zechariah and Elizabeth. The Lord is disciplining him because of his unbelief. But the Lord is not finished with him. He is disciplining him that he might restore him. That he might come out better on the other end than when he went in doubting God. And so it is with all of us. All right, I want you to see three things. Uh, Number one, look at, first of all, restored obedience. Restored obedience. This is verses 57 through 63. Now, as we open up and begin at verse 57, we see that nine months of pregnancy has passed, and Elizabeth gives birth to her baby boy. And everyone around them is excited about it. We see it in verse 58. Uh, The neighbors are excited. The relatives are excited. They're rejoicing. Everybody's coming to see the baby. Uh, We're throwing parties. Everybody is happening. And it truly is a a wonderful experience to be uh, surrounded by uh, loving and helpful people during these precious seasons of our life. It appears that Zechariah and Elizabeth had just that. They had loving and helpful neighbors, family, and friends. I know my wife and I have experienced that great just from this church family. Uh, We were just youngins when we came here 15 years ago. We had no youngins of our own. And this church family has been with us, helping us and loving on us and encouraging us from the moments that we lost children to even having Kate come and then Keegan and Ellie and to our surprise, Jaden. And I think that's it, I'm pretty sure. But all through the journey, all through the journey, we've been surrounded by so much love and help and even thinking about what this church did for us when when Jaden came to us. I remember the night that I told our church family, you had no idea this was going on, uh, that Kathleen wasn't here tonight because she's at the hospital in Thomasville and we're adopting a baby. Before I got home from church that Wednesday night and pulled up in my driveway, There were pack and plays and diapers and baby clothes sitting on my front porch. Now, I don't know how that happened. I don't know if people left in the middle of the church and went to Walmart before I preached my sermon or what. But I know we felt the love of people around us rejoicing with us and helping us at the birth of our children. That's the scene here. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they're old. This is a miracle. Nobody expected this to happen. It's a surprise. I mean, a real big surprise. And everybody is coming around them, just excited, rejoicing, helping, happy. Now, we come to verse 59, and we find out that just as it was in the Jewish custom, that on the eighth day, you would take your son to the temple to be circumcised. That's what's happening here. On the eighth day, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they take John to the temple. And while they're in this customary procedure, it was typically on that day that the child would be officially named. We'll see this again in chapter 2 with Jesus. But here it's happening with John, verse 59. While they're going through the ceremonial custom of circumcision, it's time to officially name the child, verse 59. And they would have called him Zechariah, 
after his fathers, who is the uh, they. The they is the people in the temple, the, uh, the people uh, coming uh, and observing the ceremony, conducting the ceremony. They, they would have called him Zechariah. It was the tradition for the oldest son to be named after his father. They did that in order to carry on the namesake of the lineage. But to everyone's surprise, Elizabeth, Elizabeth speaks up in verse 60, and she says, no. No. Now, I don't know what the dynamic was uh, when you were trying to pick out names for your children. Uh, perhaps you waited until the very last hour to pick out a name, and maybe you suggested something, and mama says, no, that's not what it's going to be. But this is not quite the same. She's not saying no because she didn't like the suggestion. No, because God had already named the child. She says, no, he shall be called John. Again, why is she so insistent? Because this was the exact instruction of the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1. Verse 13 The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. That's the instruction. You're going to have a baby. It's going to be a boy, and you're going to call his name John. So this is why Elizabeth says, no, no, we're not going to name him Zechariah. His name is John. At this point, we find out that everyone appeals to Zechariah on the decision. After all, he's said nothing because he can't say anything. He's still at this moment without any ability to talk. Zechariah, what what do you want to name your son? Nobody in your family carries the name of John. Surely you want this boy to be named Zechariah. This is so unusual. Look at verse 63. He asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. His name is John. It's somewhat of a forceful response, isn't it? His name is John. His name is John. It's not up for debate. The matter's done. There's not a single hint here of hesitation or disagreement about it. The decision has already been made. John is not saying here, well, we're still thinking it through and maybe we'll call him John. No, it's not that at all. He simply says his name is John. This has already been decided. His name is John. Now, when Zechariah wrote his name is John, It was a sign. It was a sign that Zechariah had learned the lesson God had been teaching him for the past nine months. He now believed. He now trusted God. Everything that Gabriel had said nine months previous to this, that he questioned, that he doubted, that he said was impossible, well, he didn't think that way anymore. God has done a work in his heart. God has changed his mind. He's now trusting God. He sees that what he thought was impossible is possible with God. And he emphatically, by faith, says his name is John. His name is John. 
You see, the purpose of the Lord's discipline had been fulfilled in Zechariah's life. He's now obedient. And because he's obedient to God's word, he would now be restored. You see, obedience is where restoration begins. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. Listen to what he's saying. God has torn us to heal us, but to be healed, we got to return to the Lord. We got to get back to obedience to God. Obedience is where restoration begins. Zechariah has been torn. And he's come to realize that the pathway to healing is returning to the Lord in obedience to his word. And perhaps tonight you feel these words heavy on your heart. He has torn us. He has torn us. Make it real personal. He has torn me. <laughs> he has torn me. He's disciplining me. He's disciplining me. Well, friend, he's trying to teach you something. For any of us who may be under the discipline of the Lord tonight, he's trying to teach us something. And what he's trying to teach us is if we would simply return to him in faith and obedience, then we can experience healing. Healing. You see, there can be no healing of restoration, of restoration without choosing to obey his word. That's what Zechariah is expressing here. Obedience to God. Now, by the way, we know Zechariah is sincere about this obedience to God. Because his obedience at this point is without any promise that his speech will return. And perhaps this is where the Lord is trying to get you and me tonight. The willingness to obey Whatever his plans are for your life, regardless of whether or not you actually get back what you've lost. I know it's Wednesday night, but are you listening to me this evening? It may be that the Lord's discipline and healing and restoration that he wants to do in your life is to get you to the point that you are willing to obey whatever his plans are for your life regardless of whether or not you actually get back what you've lost. Zechariah was obedient before he ever knew whether or not he would talk again. That's true repentance. It's true restoration. Restored obedience. Then we see, secondly, restored speech. Restored speech. This is verses 64 through 66. Look at it, verse 64. And immediately, uh, Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke. His restored obedience brought immediately restored speech. After nine months of being mute, he could finally talk again. I, I wonder, what, what was that time of silence like for Zechariah? Nine months of not talking. Nine months of not speaking. Well, we've already commented previously that for Elizabeth, it was probably the best nine months of her life. She didn't have to listen to one word out of her husband's mouth. But what about Zechariah? 
What was it like for him? No doubt it was filled with a lot of thinking. Thinking about his unbelief. Thinking about his doubt. Thinking about his hesitancy to obey God's message. I I can sure picture him reading the scriptures a lot during that time. Studying all of those prophecies that he doubted. I can picture him praying a lot. Seeking God's mercy and grace and restoration over and over again. Crying out to God, I'm so sorry for doubting you. He's thinking these. He's saying it in his heart. He's he's praying. He's reading scriptures. Uh, Maybe he was a walker. I could see him walking in his hillside neighborhood as he contemplates what God is teaching him. A church family, it was without question a season of suffering for Zachariah. But a necessary season. A necessary season. In order for Zechariah to learn all that God needed to teach him. It's interesting also here that his restored speech is a reminder that God's discipline was temporary for Zechariah's life. This was simply a a season, a temporary time of teaching him, maturing him, growing him. It wasn't meant to be this way forever. Zechariah would be restored as long as he continued submitting to God's discipline. But one of the biggest things to me that, that I observe here about that period of silence for Zechariah is that there is no indication of bitterness in Zechariah toward God. And I think that is proven by verse 64 because the first words out of his mouth when he does get to talk again are words that were blessing God, not cursing God. His speech is it's filled with praise and worship as he blesses God for all that he has done. While Zechariah blesses God and praises God and worships God, the, the Scripture tells us that the people stood in amazement of what they were seeing. It was a miracle. The newborn child was a miracle. Zechariah's restored speech was a miracle. And before you know it, Zechariah, Elizabeth, and their son John was the talk of the town. The people knew God was doing something in the life of this family, especially in the life of this child. In the closing verse, verse 65 and 66, they say, who is this child? Something's going on here. Something special is about to happen. Who is this child, they asked. It was obvious to them that the mark of the Lord's hand was on his life from the very beginning. Restored obedience Restored speech. It reminds me of what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you. 
He will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, establish you. This is the purpose of the Lord's discipline. A little bit of suffering, a little bit of silence, a little bit of difficulty to prove His purpose in you, to make you more like Him, to restore you to greater faithfulness. That's what I think of when I see Zechariah. I think think of a man who experienced restoration by God. Restored obedience. Restored speech. Let me give you this third one. Restored joy. Restored joy. This is verses 67 down through 80. We now come to what is the second recorded song of Christmas. We've already looked at the Magnificent which is Mary's song earlier in the chapter. Now we have what is called the Benedictus, Zacharias' song. The Latin, magnificent, it means my soul magnifies the Lord. It's the first line of Mary's song. And and the Latin word Benedictus means blessed be the Lord God of Israel. It's also the first line of Zacharias' song. It's a song of blessing to God specifically for how he worked to fulfill the messianic promise of Christ's birth. Of course, both of these Latin words, Magnificat and Benedictus, they describe the theme of these significant songs of Christmas, both of which are joyful songs of praise. There are two major emphasis in Zechariah's song, and I want you to see this as we close this out tonight. Two major emphasis that bring to the surface the joy of Zechariah's restoration, the joy of what God has done in his heart and what God is doing around him. The first emphasis is this. It's simply God has fulfilled his promise. That's the first emphasis. Zechariah's song declares that God has fulfilled his promise. Look at how many references Zechariah makes to the promised word of God in his song. Verse 70, he, that is God, spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Verse 72, he made a promise to our fathers. Again in verse 72, he made a holy covenant with our fathers. Verse 73, he swore an oath to our father Abraham. Now all of these words are a description of God's word. They are synonyms for God's word itself. Prophecies, promises, covenant, oath. And all of that's important. Because this is the brick and mortar of our faith. God's word is the foundation of everything that we believe. The prophecies, the promises, the the covenants, the oaths of God. His word, his word is the foundation. It's the brick and mortar. It will withstand anything that is thrown its way. And what Zechariah is saying, our God is a promise-keeping God. God. He has spoken his word and he has kept his word. God has fulfilled his promises. There's a lot of politicians that love to carry that slogan. Promises kept, promises kept, promises kept. But no one, no one can perfectly claim that to be true about their character except the Lord God Almighty. He has kept 
every one of his promises. And Zechariah mentions two of them. He says God promised to bring salvation through the throne of David, and he has. Let me remind you, we're studying it in 2 Samuel right now. Let me remind you of 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verses 12 and 13. When God speaks to David and says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That was the promise God made to David. A son of yours somewhere down the line is going to be the perfect king who establishes my perfect kingdom forever. And Zechariah now declares through that song, promise kept. Promise kept. Luke chapter 1, look at it, verse 69. Luke's song, or excuse me, Zechariah's song says, He, God, has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. This past Sunday morning you read from Psalm 132 in your opening scripture reading. I had selected that psalm uh, purposefully as knowing we would come to this passage. But since we weren't in the passage Sunday, let me read at least one verse from you uh, again for you from that psalm. Psalm 132 in verse 17. The psalmist said, there I will make a horn To sprout out for David, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. So this is the prophecy that a a horn of salvation is going to come through the lineage of David. And Zechariah is saying, hey, the horn of salvation is on his way. God has kept his promise. Everything that he said would happen is coming true before our very eyes. God also promised to Abraham, and Zechariah alludes to that here. That through Abraham, God said, I would provide deliverance and mercy to both Israel and to all the nations. We remember that promise in Genesis chapter 12. I will make of you, God says to Abraham, a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the world will be blessed. That was the promise. Through Abraham, what we know to be Israel, will come salvation for the world. Zechariah declares through his song, promise kept. Promise kept. Look at it, verse 73. This this salvation, this, this redemption, it is a result of the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham. Family, these promises are perfect. They were made by a perfect God. They were fulfilled in His perfect Son, Jesus, and they were kept by His perfect Word. And Zechariah's song wants us to know here at Christmas that everything we are celebrating is a result of God keeping His promise. It's a reminder And don't miss this before we move on. That you and I are not saved because of our promises to God. We are saved because of His promises to us. We don't keep our promises. But not one promise has ever been made by God 
that he has not honored in the truth of his character. We are saved today because God makes promises that he keeps to we who believe him. Well, the second emphasis, and this is where we'll close, Zechariah wants us to know that God has fulfilled his promise, but the second emphasis is that God is speaking again. That's the second emphasis of this Christmas carol, that God is speaking again. Now, we've noted this already, but up until the angelic appearance of Gabriel to Zechariah, God, God had been silent with his people for 400 years. It had been 400 years. Think about that. 400 years since they had heard from God through any of his prophets. Malachi was the last And his prophecy from God was that another prophet is going to come with the power and conviction of Elijah in order to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. And after that promise in Malachi, all we have is silence. Not one word until the events of Luke chapter 1, 400 years later. And now, Zechariah acknowledges through his song that God is speaking again. After 400 years of silence, God is speaking again. And he's going to speak through my son, Zechariah says. My son, John, who will become known as the Baptist. He is the prophet that Malachi spoke of. He is the one who has come to prepare the way of the Lord. God is speaking again, and he's going to speak through my son, John. In fact, the message that John is going to proclaim is fivefold. Zechariah speaks to each of these in his song. The first thing he says is that the message John is going to preach is that God is coming to visit. God is coming to visit. Now, why is God coming to visit? Well, he's coming to visit so that he might redeem us, to to save his people. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. For what reason? Verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people. One day God is going to visit again. And when he visits again, he's coming to pour out wrath and judgment. But that was not the purpose of his first visit. His first visit was to come and give grace and mercy and love and salvation to those who would believe it. This is Zechariah's song. John, my son, is going to go preach. He's going to go prepare everybody for the fact that God is coming to visit. He's coming to redeem his people. Not only is he coming to visit, but the second aspect of this is that God will forgive their sins. God will forgive their sins. Verse 77, he's going to do this in the forgiveness of their sins, in the forgiveness of the sins. Salvation, the knowledge of salvation, is understanding the forgiveness of our sins. He's, he's, He's giving us a Savior. Thirdly, God will demonstrate his steadfast love and tender mercy. God will demonstrate his steadfast love and tender mercy. Verse 78, he's going to do this because of the tender mercy of our God. God is going to visit us. He's going to forgive our sins. He's doing this because of his tender mercy, his steadfast love, his compassion toward us. 
And in so doing, number four, he will give light to those who have lost their way, to those who sit in darkness, verse 79. This is why he's coming. This is the message John is preaching. You need to follow the one who's going to come after me because it is he who will give you light. It is he who will direct your path. That's the fifth dynamic of this. God will give peace to those who walk in the shadow of death. Those whose souls are filled with anxiety, not knowing one step in front of them, where their soul is, what their purpose in existing may be. He says God is going to come. He's going to forgive our sins. He's doing this because he loves us. He's going to light the way of darkness. He's going to give peace to us who know not where we go. Verse 79, and in the shadow of death he will guide our feet into the way of peace. This, this will be the ministry of John the Baptist. He's going to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ to visit this earth through incarnation, to save his people through crucifixion, to give them life through resurrection. Well, what joy it is to see here the joy of the Lord restored in the heart of Zechariah. That's what happened to David in his own season of discipline from God. Psalm 51, the joy of his salvation was restored. His song came back. Now in Luke 1, the man who once doubted God is singing from the rooftop that God is on his way to restore what is broken and to redeem what is is lost. And that's what Jesus does. He restores what is broken. He redeems what is lost. He makes all things new. And Zechariah is absolutely thrilled that his son John gets to be a part of this historical eternal reality. Well, Christmas is about God coming into this world as a human being, a perfect man, a perfect God, in order that he might save fallen men and women from their sins. And as we will learn from John's ministry in the months ahead, to be saved from our sin, we must repent of our sin and turn in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. And the reason we know that is because God has spoken. In fact, God is speaking still through his word. Which is why when we come to a moment like this, we need to proclaim what the writer of Hebrews did throughout his letter. Today, if you can hear his voice... Harden not your heart. He is speaking. We rejoice in the fact that he is speaking. And when he speaks, we not only should listen, but we should believe what he has to say. I don't know what you're going through this evening, but I do know if the Lord's hand of discipline is on your life, that you need to look to Zechariah and know 
that this is for a season. And he is bringing this discipline to restore me to his greater purposes. Let's stand together for prayer.